Oh God, we come before you again on a Sunday. Lord, asking that you would speak through your holy word. That we might hear what you have to say. That we might believe and understand the word you have for us. Speak, O oh Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. Well, back in January, uh, our church participated in an area-wide initiative called Explore God. Some of you may remember that. And during that series, we were addressing some of the hardest questions that people ask about the Christian faith, some of the most common. And today, I want to circle back to what I think, it's my personal opinion, but what I think is probably the hardest question about the Christian faith. If God is so good, if God is so powerful, then why is there so much evil in this world? Why is there so much tragedy and injustice and racism and greed and abuse and all of these horrific things that we see in our world? If God is so good and powerful, why do these things exist? That's the question we're going to be driving at this morning. And this problem has perplexed Christians and people of other faiths and people of no faith for a long, long time. And it perplexed people in the Old Testament as well. And it was getting even more confusing for Jews in the first century who are listening to an up-and-coming prophet and teacher named Jesus of Nazareth who is saying that the kingdom of God has come. That in and through himself, the kingdom of God, God's rule and reign was coming back to earth. And we've been in this series called Unlocking the Parables. We've been going through each of the parables, the, the short stories that Jesus told. And we've been hearing many stories about this kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming. We have heard that the kingdom is like seeds that were sown in the ground and that there's going to be those who respond positively to this message and those who don't respond very positively. We have been told that the kingdom is more valuable than anything in the whole world and that we should give up everything to get it. We have heard that the kingdom is kind of hidden like yeast in the bread, but it's going to keep growing and growing and growing over time. But I think the question still remains and perhaps is even more difficult. Because if Jesus has brought the kingdom, if Jesus is now the true Lord of the world, then why isn't, isn't it making a bigger difference? Why, why is there still so much evil? Jesus is the king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus has come. But we still see horrific things in our world. Why is the kingdom not making a bigger dent in the problems that we see? <clears throat> Excuse me. And Jesus, he tells us a couple of parables that help us answer this question. The first one we're going to look at is called the parable of the wheat and the weeds. I want to invite everybody to turn in your Bible with me uh, to look at Matthew chapter 13. We are going to be looking at this chapter through uh, the message today. And starting verse 24, Jesus begins to tell this story. And he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then do the weeds come from? Let me pause there. This is the question we're driving at. God, if you're so good, if you made the world good, if you're powerful, where did all these weeds come from? Where did all this evil, where did all this sin, where did all this wickedness and oppression come from? Well, we get the answer in verse 28. The man says, an enemy did this, he replied. So the first, this is the first point I want to communicate to you this morning. Number one, evil in the world comes from Satan. Evil in the world comes from Satan. Jesus tells his disciples, 
that these weeds, these weeds come from the evil one, the enemy, the devil. And he tells, it, tells them that his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy everything that's good about God's creation. He wants to bring lies, chaos, confusion, and destruction into your life and into everyone's life. That is his goal. That is what he's trying to do. And us Christians in the West, we tend to easily overlook this. But this is the unmistakable and clear teaching of Jesus. That, that an enemy is out there. He's working and he's destroying God's good world. Where do the weeds come from? It's simple. An enemy did this. You guys know the story in the Genesis 1 and 2 about how God created the world good. Everything that God created is good. It was very good. Everything was perfect. But an enemy invaded God's good world and began sowing weeds of lies, of deception, chaos, confusion. And he deceived humans into thinking that they could and they should define good and evil for themselves and thereby rebel against God and do as they pleased. And when they did that, they began to sow weeds of death and destruction in their own life. And now ever since, Satan has been at work doing the same thing over and over again. Sowing seeds or sowing weeds of evil in this world. Why is all this important? Why is this important? Because I think I see many of us, we get so messed up in our thinking that it can harm our relationship with God. I see so many people, it prevents them, the way they think about God in the world, prevents them from seeing and having a loving relationship with their Heavenly Father. Because the problem is most people, they tend to blame God for everything that happens in their life and in the world. God, why did you do this to me? God, why did you let this tragedy happen to me? God, why is, is this injustice? Why are you doing this? God, we, blame, we put all the blame on God for all the bad things we see in the world and on the news. And what happens is God gets the blame for what Satan is trying to do. God gets the, the reputation for what Satan is accomplishing in the world. And that's, that can mess you up theologically if you begin to think that God is doing what Satan is up to. But let me be clear, we all know that God can take what Satan meant for evil and redeem it for good so we can see the Father's loving care even in the midst of all this suffering and destruction. But let's be careful that we don't blame God for the evil that Satan is doing in this world. Satan is the one at work. He is the enemy. And one of the ways that he works is by deceiving us, by deceiving humans into doing what he wants them to do, into doing Satan's will. And this is where Jesus gets kind of shocking. Look at verse 39. This is Jesus' interpretation of the passage. He says, The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. So in other words, Satan is at work sowing destruction in people's lives, so much so that they become blindly complicit in doing his will. This is what the Apostle Paul also teaches in 2 Corinthians 3. Paul calls Satan the god of this age, who has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What is Satan doing? He's blinding people from seeing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's the great deceiver. He's the great liar. Jesus calls him the father of lies. And he tricks people into choosing sin to their own destruction of their life. And because of that, from a theological point of view, you can say Satan is at work enslaving people, capturing them to do his bidding, to do what he would have them to do, which is to destroy their own life. And the Apostle Paul saw this at work. When the, many of you know that the Apostle Paul had a young mentee named Timothy, a young pastor in the, the city of Ephesus. And he's help, trying to help Timothy 
uh, get better at pastoring and all those things. And so he writes a couple letters. And in 2 Timothy, uh, he's writing to him because there's this problem in the church. There are these people who have risen to, to teach false doctrine, false teaching in the church. And Paul sees this as a really big deal. Because if the enemy is the great liar, Christians need to be concerned about the truth. We need to know the truth and hold to the truth. Because Satan is at work lying. And so Paul gives some instructions about this in 2 Timothy 2, 25-26. He tells Timothy, The opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Whew, that's intense. I don't know if I would ever do what the Apostle Paul says and, and say, oh, they've been taken captive by Satan to do his will. But the reality is, the Apostle Paul sees what's going on in reality, but he sees beneath it. He sees the spiritual realm. He sees what Satan is up to, that he is sowing weeds of lies and confusion and destruction in the church, and he's using it other people to get it done. He has deceived those in the church to teach something false. And so he instructs his mentee, Timothy, help them come to their senses. Help them see the truth. Help them see the knowledge of the truth, that they might come to repentance. They need to know the truth. So where did all this evil in the world come from? It came from an enemy. And it comes from an enemy who uses others. A lot of the evil that we see in the world is from people who choose sin, who choose to do wicked things, who choose to do evil things. And so doing, they are blindly complicit with Satan's goal for the world, which is destruction. So people may not recognize it, but Jesus says, the weeds are the people of the evil one. They have become complicit with Satan. These are those who have not submitted to God's, God's ways and his law. They have gone their own way. They have rebelled against the creator. And I think even then, this helps us in our thinking about evil and about people. Because no matter how wicked or evil someone may be, we have to remember, it's not just them. It's not just them. There is an enemy who is trapping, who is deceiving, who is capturing. As, as wicked and as evil some things may be, this gives us the hope to not give up on others. Because it's not just them. There is an enemy at work. And God is trying to bring them to their senses that they might see the truth. Okay, so evil comes from Satan and from those he tricks into sowing weeds of evil in this world. But I don't think it still, it still doesn't answer our question. Why isn't God doing more about it? I mean, what do you think God should do about all the evil in the world? I think when we ask this question, we kind of hope, God, just get rid of it. Just get rid of all the evil. It'd be much, our world would be much better if it was just gone. And this is what the servants assume in the passage as well. Look at verse 29. The servants ask him, do you want us to go and pull them up? In other words, God, you want, to get, want us to get rid of all these evil people? Should we go destroy them? Should we go you know, get rid of them? What do you want us to do? Verse 29. No, he answered. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather, gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. Here's the second point that I want to communicate to you from this passage. Number two, God graciously delays judgment on evil until the end of the world. God graciously delays judgment on evil until the end of the world. He says, no, do not pull up the weeds. Why? You may uproot the wheat with them. Now, I'm no gardener. I have no green thumb or brown thumb or 
I don't have any thumbs when it comes to gardening. But whatever the case, I would assume that weeds are bad. That I would want to pull up the weeds, because people, you, you should weed out the weeds in your garden right away, right? That's what I would assume. But this is not the case in this particular, particular agricultural instance. You see, the wheat and the weeds, they grow very close together, and that the roots become intertwined. Now, this particular weed uh, in the Greek is called darnel, and actually the, the roots of this weed would grow deeper than the roots of the wheat. And they became intertwined so that if you have the, the, the weed here and the wheat up here, the weeds are down below, and if they're intertwined, if you pull up the weed, what's that going to do to the wheat? It's going to uproot it. It's going to take it out so it will no longer grow. So the, the master gardener's solution is verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. The master says to let them grow instead of uprooting the plants. Because what's going to happen is over time, because right now in the story, these, these, they're just starting to sprout. They're just little wheats and weeds on the ground. But over time, they're going to grow tall. They're going to have stalks. And at the end of the harvest, what they would do is they would cut down the stalks. Now they could separate what was the wheat and what was the weeds. And the farmer would, they take the, the weeds and burn them up, and then they take the wheat and store it in the barn. And so the point is, it's not time to uproot them. It's not time. In fact, it might be harmful to uproot them right now. You have to wait. It is delayed until the end. So Jesus gives the later interpretation. And he says, the harvest represents the end of the age, the end of the world, and the harvesters are angels. In verse 40, he says, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. In other words, all judgment is delayed until the end of the world, the end of the age when Jesus returns. The solution, all this evil, all this chaos, all this injustice that we see in the world, it's got to wait until the end. It's got to wait until the very end when God gets rid of all evil in his good world and restores the heavens and the earth. Why is this important? Because it's all grace. It is all grace. God is not treating any one of us as our sins actually deserve. God could judge any of us for, at any moment, for any sin that we've ever done. God could say, enough's enough, your time's up. Sorry. God could judge anybody at any moment for the sin that we do. But he knows how sinful we are. And he gives us chance upon chance upon chance. Friends, if you're still breathing, God's not done with you yet. If you're still here, God has given you more chance, more hope, more opportunity to grow in your knowledge of him, to trust him, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He has given you more grace. God is letting the wheat and the weeds of this world grow together. And that means there will be, always be evil in this world until the end. But until then, God is redeeming as many people as possible out of Satan's grasp and into his kingdom. Look how the Apostle Peter puts this in 2 Peter 3, 7 through 9. He says, The present heavens and the earth, there's going to be a new heavens and the earth when God re renews the world. He says, These, This present heavens and earth, they are reserved for fire, the image of judgment. They're being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Pause there. In other words, there's a delay. They were told, just as we are, that Jesus was going to come back and judge the world. And they're wondering, why hasn't it happened yet? 
2,000 years ago, they were wondering that. We're still wondering it sometimes. And it, the Apostle Peter is saying, hold on. Time with God is not like it is with us. A day is like a thousand years to God. A thousand years is like a day. It, that, that's not what's going on here. Why is there a delay? Because he's patient with you, he says. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's why there's a delay. Because God is redeeming as many people as possible until the end. And I think, again, this helps us in our conceptions about God and the world. Because when we understand this parable, we at the very least should not be surprised about evil in this world. We know an enemy did this. And nor should we be surprised. Even though how bad the world seems to get, God is still patient. God is still full of grace. God is still giving opportunity. He's delaying all judgment until the end of the world and giving as many people an opportunity. There's a band that uh, Laura and I and our family, even Daisy, actually really like. Some of you may know Ren Collective, Ren Collective Experiment. We'll, we'll turn on the music videos in our house and Daisy will dance to them and sing to them and it's, and it's really cute. But uh, that's not the point. But the point, the point is there's a song that they sing. I think it's called Second Chances. And uh, it's a, the line is, there are countless second chances that we've been given at the cross. Can you imagine how many second chances has God given us in our lifetime? Every moment, every day is a second chance with God. Every breath you breathe is a second chance with God. Every moment we have is an opportunity to trust in his grace, to receive his forgiveness. Friends, it's never too late for you to come back to God. Your friends, your family, they're never too far gone to make a return. God is giving everyone second chances to come back. God's policy is to let the good and evil coexist until Jesus returns and has the final judgment. And that brings me to number three, the final point this morning, is that in the end, God will judge evil and reward the righteous. God will judge evil and reward the righteous. Look at verse 40. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels... And they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Do you have ears this morning? Then Jesus says, pay attention. This was his way of saying, this is really important. What I'm saying is very important. And he's talking about judgment. One day there's going to be a separation. That all who do evil will be weeded out, Jesus says, thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whew. Is anybody else uncomfortable? Man, these are, can we just admit that whatever this is, whatever this means, it sounds terrifying. It sounds very terrifying what's going on here. I think we have to go back to our initial problem. The problem of evil. All of the injustice, all of the horrific things, the abuse, the sex trafficking, all of the evil in our world, are we concerned about it? Are you ever angry about it? Or do you ever wish it would just be, be gone? See, whatever level of concern that you have for the evil in the world, God has even more. God is even more upset about the brokenness to his good world. His, goods, his good world. And so judgment is his way of setting every wrong to be right. He's gracious with us. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, but he does have a plan to finally bring justice to all who do evil and who do not repent. And the common word that people use 
uh, for this idea of judgment in the end is called hell. So people usually, this, that's their understanding, that the righteous who trust in Jesus go to heaven, the wicked who do not go to hell. That's usually how we, we frame this. Now, Jesus does not use the word hell in this passage, but he does in other passages. And I think the word hell, it, it conjures up all kinds of images and feelings for us. It's very interesting. It's fascinating to me. I've been reading this biography on Jonathan Edwards, a famous preacher in, in America. He's most famous for a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Maybe you're familiar with that. And it was fascinating because his father was a pastor and would give him kind of advice and tips on how to preach. And did you know in the 1700s in colonial America, the mark of a good sermon was how much judgment, how much damnation, and how much you spoke about hell. That was the mark of a good sermon. And the more you did that, the better your sermon was. So based on that, I don't think I've hardly preached many good sermons here at Faith Covenant. <laughs> better, better go back and, and recalibrate here. You know, I might, you know, I think many Christians, we have recognized over time that this went too far. Because many people realize, you know what, it's hard to conceive of God as loving when every sermon you hear in church is about hell and damnation. How do you experience the love and grace of God if that's every sermon you hear? It would be absolutely hard. So we recognize that this was, that the, the, this was a, a bad place to be, but I might say maybe we've swung the pendulum a bit too far. Because now we're very shy to speak about judgment. We're very, this is a hard topic to deal with, hard scriptures to deal with. We're shy to speak about these things. And if this is your first time here, honestly, we don't preach about it every sermon or even all that much, but when it's in the Bible, we address it, we deal with it. We are people of the book. So how do we navigate this topic without the problems that it caused in the past? How do we deal with what's in the Bible without causing the baggage that it's caused other people in the past? I think first, we have to be humble in our understanding of what the judgment is. And we have to be careful with our words about what hell and judgment actually are. We have to be concerned with our, our emotions, our feelings, our thoughts, all about this topic. And Jesus here, in this passage, he compares the judgment to the wheat that, get, that gets burned up at the end of the harvest. It gets burned up in the furnace, it goes through the fire, and then it is no more. And then he tells another story that you heard earlier. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down in the lake, and it caught all kinds of fish. Now what they would do is they would, there was to be a big long net that they could attach to one side of the boat and to the other, and they have weights on it, and it would sink all the way down to the bottom. And then they would take this net and they'd, they'd take the boat and anything they would capture in its path. So it would capture all kinds of fish. Some that were good for selling at the marketplace and some that might be unclean or, or rotten or spoiled and they couldn't sell. And he says when they, they collect the fish, what the fishermen do, they would sit down, they would collect them, and then they would sort them. They'd put the good fish in the baskets and the bad fish they would just toss away. So Jesus says the judgment is going to be like bad fish getting thrown away and the good fish getting collected. And then Matthew 8, 12, he gives another comparison. He says, in the judgment, those who are, who are judged will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So darkness is a metaphor. Let me give you another one from the Apostle Paul, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9. He says, those who are judged will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So he says in this passage, it's destruction. They're destroyed, shut out from God's presence forever. I could give you many, many more ways that this is described. But the point is, Jesus the Bible, it's in the Bible itself described the judgment in various ways. It's like darkness. It's like a blazing furnace. 
It's like being thrown away like a bad fish. It's like being destroyed. Or it's like the second death, as it might be called. And I think any fair-minded person could see how these words and images bring, could lead to maybe different understandings of what's actually happening. There's a debate amongst Christians about the nature of hell. Is it, you know, is it this thing that goes on forever, or is it more of a limited judgment, or, or what have you? But my point today is not to, to get into that. That is not, and if you want to learn more, you can talk to me or, or Kurt Jarris. He knows a lot about this topic as well. So, sorry, Kurt, I told you I might throw you in there. But the point is, we have to be careful with our words, and we understand that there is a judgment. Because whatever the final judgment is, we have to understand that it's very serious and very horrific. It sounds horrific. Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So weeping, that sadness. Now gnashing of teeth, no one seems to know exactly what this means. Might connotate anger, maybe at God, or maybe at yourself for not repenting soon enough. We're not, we're not sure what it means. But I like what one scholar says about these words. He says, Trench says, these words point to some doom so intolerable that the Son of God came down from heaven and tasted all the bitterness of death, that he might deliver us from ever knowing the secrets of anguish, which unless God be mocking men with empty threats, they are shut up in these terrible words. Whatever judgment it is, whatever mystery lies behind these words, know that God came to redeem men and save them from ever experiencing and tasting what he has warned them about. I think we're, we're so tempted to edit these words out of Scripture, aren't we? We're so tempted to edit these words out because they don't seem to line up with the, the love of Jesus that we proclaim, the grace of Jesus Christ that we proclaim. What's going on? Well, let me remind you, friends, the same Jesus who died on the cross for your sins and said, Father, forgive them. He is the same one who from his lips is giving us this parable. He is the one who's giving us this teaching. It's not me. It's not somebody else. Jesus is saying this. So what's going on? Well, we've got to start with the baseline. 2 Timothy 2, 3-4 says, God, our Savior, wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So I take that at face value. God wants all people to be saved. Jesus wants all people to be saved. Then I can only surmise that this is precisely why he so consistently and so frequently and so sternly warned people about the coming judgment. And that's the reason why. He says, sure, God will let you live however you want now. The wheat and the weeds will grow together, but be warned. Weeds get burned up in the end. There will be a judgment that's coming. Jesus was so loving that he consistently taught about this subject. He warned us again and again. A doctor would not be a good one if you had a deathly disease that was easily treatable and the doctor withheld that information from you in the treatment. Can you imagine if you went to the doctor's office, the doctor saw this terminal disease that you had and said, you're fine. Everything's quite all right with you. The Lord made you how you are. You just get on with your day. You're all right. That would be insane. That would be unloving. If any, if any one of us saw someone about to be hit by a car in the street, wouldn't you not call out and say, get out of the way. A car is coming. It would be the epitome of evil and wickedness if you said nothing. And I think Jesus is so loving, he knows what's coming at the end. He knows there will be a judgment. He wants all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. So that's why when you read the Gospels, you see him warning people so consistently. He wants people to be saved. He wants people to come to their senses, escape the lies of the devil, and come to the knowledge of the truth. And as a preacher, 
as a pastor, it would be severely unloving of me if I avoided these difficult topics and parables. I would love just to give you the good Samaritan and the prodigal son and move on. Aren't those just wonderful parables? Peter did such a great job last week with the good Samaritan. Wonderful sermon. But you know what? We need the parable of the wheat and weeds too. We need the parable of the net. As much as it hurts to stare in the face, we need the truth. We cannot avoid it. And I think when we understand this in the context of God's love and grace, we, sometimes we have hard times holding truths that seem to be intention, but actually the truth is when you hold both intention. See, God is loving and full of grace. We've got to hold that truth. And when you see judgment in the context of that, I think it begins to make sense. Because without judgment, there is no answer to the problem of evil. Evil will win. Injustices will go unrectified. There will be no solution to evil in this world. Without judgment, nothing you do matters or is of eternal consequence. So you might as well get on and do whatever you want. Without judgment, there is no need for salvation. Without judgment, there is no need for Christ to come and die for your sins. He is the Savior of the world, precisely because He has saved us from our sin and from our guilt. So judgment helps us make sense of our world and of our Savior. But I think the burning question that people have when they read passages like this is, gosh, if that's true, if Jesus is telling me the truth, how do I know if I will be counted among the righteous? How do I make sure that I'm the wheat that's gathered into the barn and not the weeds that's burned up? How do I make sure that I'm the good fish that's collected and not the bad fish? Friends, let me first say, God has done everything you need to make sure that you have eternal life with him. He sent his son to die on the cross and be risen again that you might not perish, but that you would have everlasting life. And there's only one way, to repent of your sins, to say, God, I'm done with my former life. I'm done, I'm done living in the, in the lies of the enemy. I'm done living in sin. And I put my faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That is the only way. That is the way that we are saved and have eternal life. And you must decide for yourself. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for people to die once and after this, the judgment. At the end, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of our lives. If we have truly turned from sin and put our faith in Jesus and live for him, we can rest assured that we will have eternal life forever with him. And what's, what Jesus promised will come true for us, what he said in verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Friends, there's probably a handful of things that I believe with all my heart. And one of them is that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the entire world. He is the world's true King. I think the church, and I think our church, Faith Covenant Church, we need to boldly reclaim and proclaim the truth that Jesus Christ alone is the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. He is the way. He is the light. He is the Savior of the whole world. There is one name under heaven by which we can be saved. It's, it's, not, it's not our good works. It's not any philosophy. It's not any education. It's not Buddha. It's not Mohammed. It's not money. It's not anything else. It's not a political party. It's not anyone else in this whole world. It is but by Jesus Christ alone that we are saved. Amen? That is the truth. And some of us, we have to make sure, we have to evaluate. Does the fruit of my life, do I see that I'm a true follower of Jesus? 
Have I truly repented of my sin? Have I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ once and for all and put my trust in him? If you haven't done that or you're not sure if you've done that, what are you waiting for? Today's the day of salvation. Do not wait. And some of you, you have a family member, you have a friend, you have a neighbor who is so ready to hear the gospel, but you've been too timid to share. I speak that to myself. But how can we be timid when we know the truth? When we know that Jesus Christ alone is the way to salvation. When we know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the savior of the whole world. So I say this to myself. We have to boldly proclaim this truth. Jesus Christ is the way. Jesus is the center of all things. So friends, may we have the grace to live in light of eternity. In the truth of what's coming for us in this world. May we know that God is not the author of evil. An enemy did this, not the Lord. And may you know and give thanks for his grace that does not treat us as our sins deserve. May we know the truth that he will judge evil and reward the, reward the righteous. And brothers and sisters, may we find ourselves among those who will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father forever and ever. Amen. Let's take a few moments of silence to reflect on this sermon and to prepare our hearts for prayer.